Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Andreas Madsen. Andreas is an independent researcher based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. Andreas, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to chat with you. I first came across your name uh, as a result of a Medium post that you wrote about your experience uh, becoming an independent researcher in the machine learning and AI field and ultimately uh, getting published in ICLR with a, a spotlight paper. And we're going to dig into all of that here. Uh, but let's get started with you sharing a little bit about your background and what motivated your interest in ML and AI. Uh, that's a long time ago, uh, probably like nine years ago, I think. I was okay. reading, uh, reading a book uh, called Programming Collective Intelligence, um, okay. like all the way back in high school, you would call it. Um, that's the O'Reilly book that talks about like um, collaborative filtering and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was reading this and at the time I wasn't really sure about what I would do for university. Um, uh -huh. But after reading that, I mean, I read it again <laughs> and I just uh, was really sure like this was the, the direction I, I wanted to go in. And so this was awesome. all the way before like machine learning really became like a popular subject. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, and particularly, I was at that point interested in uh, how the, he did uh, natural language processing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he used the uh, non-negative matrix factorization. Uh, which mm -hmm. If you did that now, that will be uh, <laughs> really old-fashioned. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, that was like how I, I got started. And then I did like applied mathematics uh, at university, and I just took all the machine learning courses I could. And so you uh, kind of pursued machine learning uh, independently. And in your blog post, you you recommend that people avoid pursuing machine learning as independent researchers. Uh, elaborate a little bit on your experience and, and why you make that recommendation. Mm, I mean, if you just want to develop machine learning like in the industry and you don't necessarily want to do anything novel, as we call it, Right, you you can do that independently. I think that's totally fine. Um, but if you want to do research, if you want to like develop new methods, then this is a really hard field to do it in because you need like huge computational resources that you're not gonna have, and you'll probably also need to like collaborate with others who are really experts and who can stay up to date on like f at least three hundred papers a year, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. And you're not going to have like conversations with those kind of people because you really you're just kind of alone, right? And also research in itself is just a, a very frustrating uh, experience uh, for everybody. And also sort of to go through that alone without having like PhD colleagues or such, uh, I think is, is not that healthy like mentally. <laughs> <laughs> just to be kind of mentally taxing just because yeah. of the isolation exactly like it's not that i don't have friends that i talk to right but they're not in the the research business right so maybe they uh -huh. cannot really emphasize with how it feels to uh get rejected after seven years or uh, seven months 
of, mm-hmm. uh, of writing a paper on your own funding, right? And so when you started to do this, when you set out as an independent researcher, was that coming right out of university or graduate school? Or did you leave a job to do this? Where, where were you coming from? Right. I finished like two and a half years ago. And right after that, I started as um, kind of like a freelancer um, mm-hmm. at uh, this company called Neoform that basically just do like uh, open source JavaScript. They're really good at that. And at the time, I was kind of like fed up with academia. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to uh, to do a PhD at that point. Uh, I finished my master just for context. Yeah, and I, I had this opportunity that was like very perfect for me in terms of my skills. And in that sense, I, I could get paid quite a lot. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to do next. So doing this for like three or six months was kind of perfect for me. This um, was the JavaScript, JavaScript freelancing? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, so like you're talking about creating like a profiling tool for programs or JavaScript programs. So it's not like your typical kind of JavaScript. Is... And then after that, they were like, okay, like this part is great. Do you want to do another uh, six months sort of focusing on machine learning projects that are sort of minor? And then I did that for uh, six months and that was... Uh, then the end of it, because it didn't really materialize into to them getting uh, a client. Uh, they were an, an outsourcing company, uh, just to give some context. And that was sort of also what I expected. So during that time, I had already been working on this paper here called um, uh, Visualizing Memorization in Recurrent Neural Networks. That was also one of the projects uh I did for them. I just proposed this, just run a paper as a, like marketing effort. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's been like one month from that with them. And then I just finished uh, it on my own time uh, mm-hmm. after that. Uh, yeah. And so then uh, I thought after that, I got published and distilled with this paper here. I thought like I would have a chance at getting like a research software engineer position where you kind of do both engineering and, and machine learning research because I felt like I was a good mix of both. But that turned out to be really difficult. Then I looked into getting PhD positions or into PhD programs because that's sort of the, the unwritten requirement. And this was where I was told like this publication you have right now is not enough. You need to have uh, like at least one top tier <laughs> publication, right? Or a publication in like a top venue conference. Right. And this was someone telling you that you needed the publication in the top tier conference to get a top advisor, right? No, not necessarily a top advisor. What, what was the context for that statement? Uh, I talked to like five different professors from, from different universities and they were like, oh, uh-huh. yeah, it's like really competitive. It's not that you're going to be more qualified, <laughs> like, or your abilities will be that much greater because you had this uh, publication is just, you know, that is the filter they use because they get like a thousand <laughs> applications. And so that's really just the, the harsh reality. And so in spite of uh, being a little fed up with, with academia, you embarked on, you know, what is in many ways an academic pursuit to pursue research independently push your paper and, and your your ideas a little bit further. How did you get from the mapping 
or visualizing uh, paper to the neural arithmetic unit uh, idea? I talked to an assistant researcher at the Technical University of Denmark here uh, that I live quite uh, close to. Um, it was like at a opening for um, a foundation, I think. And uh, he was just talking like, if you're interested in doing some kind of research, uh, maybe we can collaborate on that. And so I wrote to him and, and we just talked about different kind of projects. And I felt this project here was kind of like in my uh, wheelhouse because I had already done quite a lot of optimization work, not research, but done a lot of study in that field. Well, some of the, the comments that you got suggest that, you know, it's not, necessar not necessarily easy to find a willing collaborator if you don't have that credential. So you kind of lucked out there, maybe? I mean, isn't, he's not a professor. He's not even a PhD program, right? Okay. <laughs> um, he, he's just sort of assisting students with their master thesis or, and stuff like that, right? Got it, got it. And during a course they were running, they were trying to reproduce this paper here that we will probably talk about, the uh, NALO, Neural Rhythmic Logic Units. And they, they were really struggling to that and like nobody could read reproduce it consistently uh, and so he thought that might be an interesting research subject so i think like yes i did log out a bit but but not that much i think okay <laughs> so what you know before we kind of jump into the topic of the paper you know you kind of suggest that this is a hard way to to go the kind of independent researcher life but uh you were able to successfully get your paper written and uh, accepted at ICLR, you know, what works for you? What if, you know, someone else wants to, you know, disavow your advice not to pursue this path, but, you know, is open to your advice on what to do if you do decide to go down this road, you know, what mm. would that advice be? I mean, you definitely need to, to collaborate because you're not going to go out of university and be an expert at criti criticizing your own work. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, even the ones that have been in the, the academia for like 10 years, I don't think are experts at that, right? Just inherently resistant to criticizing your own work, I think is a, a fundamental property of being human. Uh, and so you need to collaborate with somebody who can do that. It does not necessarily have to be a professor, I think. Like anybody who has experience reading machine learning papers and, and can criticize them, I think will, will suit just fine. And then I think like also have reasonable expectations. Like if you're going in with the expectation that there's like an 80% chance of success, like you're delusional. Like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, like the, the success rate in these conferences is like, 20%, right? And you're probably mm -hmm. going to have like less of a chance than that because you don't have the resources everybody else have. And so you should expect to get rejected from your first submission, I think. Uh, and I was rejected. Uh, I first uh, proposed this paper here to, to Neurolabs, right? Uh, I got rejected from that and then I could use that peer review to improve the paper and then submit for, for iClear and there we then got accepted. Uh, and even that, I think, is not, not a guarantee Right. I mean, could also have been rejected there, could also have been less sloggy with uh, peer reviewers. We were very fortunate to have actually this, the same, one of the same peer reviewers that 
had from Neurolips who were very constructive and could see that we had made like really good progress. And I think also they themselves had also had like a few months to actually think about this work and also be able to think a bit more critical about uh, the competing paper. There was also an, an open review, so he could sort of like comment on other people's uh, reviews. Okay. It was also really helpful. Uh, so that's like almost once in a lifetime you get that kind of really constructive uh, peer reviewer. Like again, like lucky there, I think. So tell us a little bit about the paper. What's the motivation for uh, the research? Right. Um, so it really comes down to very abstract problem that is neural networks are really good at interpolating. They can create very complex approximations. Um, but they're not very good at extrapolating, right? Uh, it's a classic example with, uh, for example, image recognition. You put in like a white pixel somewhere and suddenly it goes from uh, being a zebra to being a couch, right? Uh, and that really comes down to neural networks are not very good at extrapolating. And what specifically do you mean by that? Because in a lot of ways, extrapolating is, you know, what we expect machine learning to do, like make predictions based on data that it's seen. That's kind of extrapolation. It's probably interpolation, right? Well, you're seeing pictures of of zebras before, but there never been like a dead pixel in any of these pictures here. So it's not, it's familiar with the concept of, of zebras, but it's not familiar with the concept of a dead pixel. Right, and that's really where you go from interpolation, like this is just another picture of a separate that is never seen before, this interpolation. But as soon as you add like a dead pixel, then you're now into a new realm of, of extrapolation. And it's, it's not an easy concept, I think, to understand when do you go from interpolation to extrapolation. But mathematically, at least, there's no reason to expect the neural network to perform well on extrapolation tasks. And so the... The research was on what measuring networks ability to do extrapolation or coming up with methods that help them to do extrapolation. Right. So so what does uh, DeepMind paper here by Andrew Trask et al. Uh, the Nello paper um, proposes mm-hmm. is to look at like a subset of problems where the underlying problem has some fundamental arithmetic to it. So some combination of addition and multiplication, let's say. Uh, and that you will have, for example, in physical models, uh, in financial models, uh, some question answering models, like what is three times five? And uh, given that assumption, can you then develop a null unit similar to, for example, uh, LSTM, but in this case for like a rhythmic extrapolation that uh, given the training data can actually work on, on numerical values that is outside of the training distribution. And so that's a, the central problem here. And uh, then there's a, the DeepMind paper, Nello, that they propose one solution. We then find that this does not converge very consistently. So it does work sometimes, but if you train in like 100 different seats, then it might only work on 10 or one of those seats. And what we're doing is then to improve that consistency such that it works on almost all of the seats, like 99 out of 100. How did you go about doing that? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I think like the, the Nello paper is, was a very, it is a very empirical paper. It just proposes this model here. It doesn't really 
give any kind of explanation behind why it looks exactly like this. And then it evaluates that on, on uh, seven different tasks. And so a lot of the typical mathematical analysis you might put into proposing a, a new unit uh, wasn't really done. So even simple things like how do you initialize the weights was a question that was not answered uh, and probably not analyzed. And so what we looked at is, for example, initialization, as I mentioned, also uh, gradients. You can also just plot like uh, the loss space. If there's some odd behavior here, in this case, we found like big area of singularities around uh, global minimus. <laughs> so that, that's to really give you an indication that uh, something going wrong. Also, redundant parameters can also be a problem when optimizing. Like if you can somehow simplify these units while still achieving the same things, uh, maybe that's then easier to optimize. And so these are all the properties we looked at. We just analyzed them one by one. And then we sort of, okay, identified that these are uh, problematic areas. And that's really the easy part. Then the hard part is then to come up with a new unit that doesn't have these issues. There's, there was different components to this uh, Nello unit here. So there's like a part that can do additions, part that can do multiplications, and then they have like a gaining unit that can uh, switch between these two parts here. And what we also did was we, for example, could say, okay, let's just say it's a multiplication problem. We fix the gating to always choose multiplication. How well does that improve anything? And so this is what you probably call like an ablacency study where you remove some of the complexity and then you see if it still works or if it works better. And they have also, for example, find that the, the gating mechanism that they're using really doesn't work as it should. It more or less just chooses either addition or multiplication randomly, <laughs> uh, independent of what the actual problem is. That doesn't sound like what you'd want it to do. No, no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Things should converge uh, dependent on your data. And so you develop this unit with kind of a different arrangement of gates. Is that the general idea? We actually skipped the gating problem. So <laughs> this is still unsolved. Uh, write to me if you want to solve it. Um, <laughs> and then we just focused on getting multiplication to work more consistently because that only converts like 30% of the times. Uh, that I will say our primary contribution. So does that mean you, you punted on the arithmetic problem or did you do that independently, but the network didn't have to choose which one it was doing? Like we, we said, okay, you have to do multiplication or you have to do addition. It didn't like understand that itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Which turns out to be a hard enough problem in itself. Yeah. Like what was happening before was really just it chose like randomly and then you know, if you train, train on enough different seats, then one of the times it's going to hit the right thing. Yeah, and, and our idea here was essentially to make it more linear. Linear functions, or at least partially linear functions, are typically more easy to optimize than very nonlinear function. So the Nello function is essentially a exponential function, so it has like x to the power of your weight of u. And then if W is zero, then it's not selected. And if W is one, then you multiply. Uh, and where in our case, we replace that concept with essentially a gaining mechanism 
between uh, one and x, uh, a linear gating mechanism. And and so this is uh, easier to optimize because it's more linear. <laughs> and so did you also apply this to uh, a variety of uh, different benchmark tasks or were you strictly evaluating performance on kind of this mathematical operation? Right. So the, the Nello paper proposes, I think, six or seven different tasks. And I mean, I'll just be honest here. I f most of those tasks are not relevant to what they're actually solving because they do not they do not test extrapolation and they do not test multiplication mm -hmm. only one of those seven tasks actually test extrapolation on multiplication uh, and so that is a task we benchmarked on and uh, that is quite a simple task so we also took one of the other tasks they had and then we modified that a bit so it would also test multiplication instead of only uh, addition and so how are these tasks set up it's pretty simple. You have like one part that is like you have a hundred different inputs and then you take two subsets of, of this input here and then you sum that together. Now you have two numbers and uh, then you multiply those two numbers and that's your target. Uh, and then this is pretty easy to test extrapolation on because then you just sample your input from a different uh, range than you trained on. And then we have a more complex task because, well, you can show that this works really well, but what if you had this in the context of a more complex neural network, then maybe it wouldn't converge. And so what we did was we also looked at MNIST numbers, where we take like a sequence of MNIST numbers, for example, and then we try and add them together or multiply them together. Uh, and then, of course, you need like a convolution neural network to translate the, the image to a number, and then you have... Uh, our unit to uh, then translate those numbers uh, or multiply those numbers. Presumably the problems are set up as uh, supervised problems. So you're training on, uh, you said in the case of the first task, a different range of the inputs. Um, and then you're running, uh, you're testing against uh, a range that the... Yeah, these are su supervised uh, regression yeah. problems. Yeah, how do you ultimately uh, perform on the the various tests? <laughs> I mean, we we perform quite a bit better. So, what's the right way to even measure performance on these kinds of tasks? Right. Uh, so that I think is a very good and central question because there's not been a lot of work in extrapolation, and uh, we actually did two papers in this: uh, a workshop paper, Neurolabs, and. Uh, where we actually just discuss how do you evaluate this and then our idea paper where we improve the model. And I think the, the fundamental idea you need to have, so the Nello paper is they just evaluate it on, on one seat and they just show the mean squared error. And mean squared errors are great for comparing is this model better than this model, but that is not really what's interesting here. Because if you truly can extrapolate, that means you have found the perfect solution. You're completely solved the problem. And mm -hmm. uh, you should have a mean square error that is very close to zero. Whatever error that is left is really just due to like computer precision. If you fully solve the problem. Yeah, exactly. What the Nello people does, did was they compared this to a, a Rayner model. <laughs> and uh, as you can imagine, a Rayner model can have quite a big error. 
especially if you multiply different uh, numbers, can, the target becomes like a million and then you have a, a random model that produces something that's a million of that and then you square that and mm-hmm. suddenly you have a, like a really big pro- uh, <laughs> error, right? Um, and so comparing really, uh, relative to this uh, random model doesn't really make sense. And so what we did instead is compare to a nearly perfect model. So we simply just like develop uh, the perfect model and then we add like a little epsilon to the weights uh, and then we use that as a threshold for what the, the mean squared error should be. And that's sort of our success criteria. And uh, once you have the success criteria, then you can uh, just do this 100 times on 100 different seats and then you can measure the success rate. Okay, I'm not sure I'm following the process here. So you're... You said you are comparing to a nearly perfect model. I mean, the nearly perfect model is what you're trying to figure out in the first place. And yeah. you have the, you know, the, you know, the absolute answer for multiplying the numbers. Right. Where does this nearly perfect model come from? Well, it's really just the, the absolute value, as, as you call it, from multiplying the numbers, like plus uh, an epsilon. Got it. So you're, you're taking the, the result that you know to be true and adding some noise to it and yeah. you're training against that. Exactly. Now this epsilon here, you of course need to adjust to reflect the number of operations actually needed to perform this uh, calculation. And why do you add the noise in the first place? Well, how does that help your model converge? Presumably that's why. I oh, know it's, uh, it's not added to the problem itself. No, it's, um, right, it's added to the criteria oh okay or the the time like what you actually like you get some mean squared error and that's very close to to zero um <laughs> like let's say but is this you're not adding this in your or are you adding this in like your loss function or is it just after you train a model in the way you present the results it's just a way of of evaluating like the results, like yeah. you need need to compare the mean squared error to something. You cannot compare it to zero because it's never gonna be zero, right? Right. And so you need to compare it to some epsilon. And in order to compute that epsilon, you essentially just run a perfect model on the problem. Uh, except it's not a perfect model; it has like a, a really tiny error, and then you get a really tiny mean squared error, and that's what you compare against. Besides the the Nalu paper, are there other uh, results that were out there to compare against, or was that the kind of state of the art in this space? It's a very new field, so that is the state of the art. There are other papers that are sort of also doing arithmetics, or for example, neural GPU is kind of a, a popular paper. In that paper, they're trying to learn algorithms, <laughs> so that's a bit different. And also, they don't focus on extrapolation, I believe. Um, but that's like the most similar. <laughs> okay. Um, but really, it, it is just that paper. Yeah, that's also part that, that made it attractive for me to research because I didn't need to spend like half a year just <laughs> understanding the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are kind of your next steps beyond this paper? Uh, right now, I'm just focused on, on trying to get into more permanent uh, situation, a PhD program or uh, a job or something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of my focus right now. Then I'm doing a, a collaboration with one from DeepMind. 
on like what will probably be a, a small workshop paper. But not Andrew Trask? Not Andrew Trask, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you have interviewed before on the podcast, incidentally. It was at Neurops a couple of years ago, I think. Oh, okay. So we talked about his privacy stuff and open mind and not uh, any of this. Yeah, he really went public on that uh, this year, I think. Mm -hmm. I would like to get more into interpretability. I think that's a really important problem. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're creating all these very complex uh, models here, but we, how do we, we, can we rely on them actually working? And so this sort of already is around what I'm already working on. Like I did the visualization of memorization that is uh, in part interpretability. And also my work here relating to Nalo is also about extrapolation, which is essentially about like, can you trust that this model is also going to work once it sees data that it has not seen before. And uh, this is something I wanted to do for a long time, but uh, I was always discouraged from pursuing it when I was at university because it didn't really feel like you could publish in the big conferences on that subject. Um, but then I was at Neurolabs 2019 because uh, I did a workshop publication and uh, saw this talk here by Bean Kim from uh, Google. And uh, I think she really like illustrated for me that it is possible to do like high quality research in this area here and get published at uh, conferences that are useful for your career. And so that is really what I kind of want to pursue. But preferably with uh, with uh, an organization, uh, you know, whether academic or industry as opposed to independent. <laughs> yeah, preferably. <laughs> so you did it, you wouldn't recommend it, and you're taking your own advice. <laughs> Exactly. Cool. Well, Andreas, thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit about your journey and research. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.